0: Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Today, we'll be speaking to Samantha Seaton, CEO of MoneyHub.
1: Welcome to the latest IFA Talk podcast, where we talk to the people who matter about the subjects that matter in financial services. I'm Brandon Russell, online writer at IFA Magazine, and alongside me is IFA editor Sue Whitbread. How are you, Sue?
0: I'm good and I'm looking forward to speaking to Sam.
1: Yeah of course we are today joined by Samantha Seaton who is CEO at MoneyHub and we're going to be talking about open banking, open data and open finance. Sam is clearly a trailblazer in helping to improve the financial well-being of consumers by growing customer relationships. She's also a real whiz at digital financial planning (laughs) solutions. We're really looking forward to this conversation so welcome to you Sam, Uh, great to have you on the podcast.
2: Thanks very much. It's brilliant to be here. Nice nice to nice to spend some time chatting about topics
0: that I love. Oh, we we're really looking forward to it Sam, I must say. Cuz this digital world of data, legislation and consumer consent, it can be really daunting, can't it? And so I wondered if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about Moneyhub to start with, and also what do our IFA listeners in particular need to know about
2: Moneyhub? But I think the main thing to tell you about Money Hub is that uh, it started, you know, uh, quite some years ago, actually, um, because everyone was so frustrated about trying to gather all their financial data together in one place, which I think to the IFA community will probably resonate mm. really well. because I think only, so, too. <laughs> not only do the customers of theirs, you know, their clients struggle with this, but they themselves obviously have to pull it all together. Mm. And, you know, it is, it is, it is mind numbing. And... And although it is obviously critical, uh, it's not the bit that we all enjoy doing. It's not the bit they, you know, they as an IFA really want to spend their time doing and also the customer themselves. And and I can still remember, you know, filling out you know, some mortgage application many years ago and I got asked how much I spend, you know, on the groceries and, you know, I paused for a bit of thought, you know, and, you know, came up with a number that I thought was realistic because, you know, I really didn't know exactly how much I spent on groceries. And, and, the, and, the, and the mortgage um, advisor was, was very good at, in that he said that I had, I, had, I had come up with a very good number because he said, I think that it probably is realistic. He said, but you wouldn't believe the number of people that try and tell him they spend like, you know, 20 pounds a week on groceries. And he said, I, I know that's not possible because of what he spends on groceries. You know, So, mm. so we had that funny discussion and it's, it's never left me because to be honest, you just don't know what you don't know and money hubs all about informing you informing the customer about what they do do with their finances and then bringing it all together providing the insight but of course for the IFA the real benefit is you've got customers who actually have got their finger on the pulse in terms of their financial data and it's organized and they've got some confidence about it and they want to go somewhere with that money they want it to work hard for them and that's what really drives us at money hub about helping people you know make the most of their money
0: good links in very well with the financial planning process there too doesn't it sorry Brandon I interjected that's
1: right no i was just saying so we've obviously had a little insight there into money hub and had a brief overview of it and all the fantastic things that are going on there but before we get into the real details of it like can we hear about about, a bit about your journey your background how did you get how do we get to the point that money hub became a reality
2: well for me it is it is quite some journey so I'll, I'll try and keep it brief because it is quite fun. So um, started obviously in Australia my journey because I was born there. And I think they say things like you know you can take the girl out of Australia, but you can't take Australia out of the girl. And I think that is probably true. So um, so you know, bear with me if I turn a bit you know Australian native at times. Um, <laughs> but but the thing is, I I you know kind of I, you know grew up, went to university, studied computer science, and then got a you know um, actually a graduate um uh, job with Telstra so it was communicating, you know with an equivalent Vodafone in, in Australia and and you know was soldiering along when when of course um I actually got long-listed for the Sydney 2000 Olympics and uh oh, wow. in eventing with my horse and you know my horse I had I had a horse do you know what I, mean? I genuinely had an ex-race horse who I'd got off the racetrack but he was amazing. He was the most amazing horse. So oh. we went from kind of, you know, kind of like you know, low level eventing to top level eventing. Had a whale of a time, uh, but to compete uh, and get selected for the shortlist, you had to compete internationally, which meant the US or the UK. Mm-hmm. And my husband, I, was, I we had not been long married. I, I said, "That's ridiculous taking a horse, you know, around the world." We've we've never been outside Australia. And he said to me, "When you're 80 in your rocking chair, do you want to think about the things you have done, or the things you could have done?" And that was it. That was it. Very right. wise, very he, wise he, husband. He, right, exactly. So, um, so we literally picked up our stuff, our suitcases, and the horse. The horse got, you know, got flown to the UK, and uh, I did compete professionally on the eventing circuit from '96 to 2000, and. Uh, that was an amazing experience. I got shortlisted. I made it into the shortlist for the Sydney 2000 Olympics, but I didn't get picked. So we were like 12 of us and five go, one's reserved, four compete. And uh, it's pretty soul-destroying to be in the group that doesn't get picked, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I also well. realised in that process that I loved my eventing and I loved my horse, um, but the thought of having to have like a professional yard of 30 odd horses and forever you know needing one at the top level to stay competitive at that top level was actually not something that really actually did interest me um and so I was quite happy after that to accept that I I could could still do my eventing as a really lovely hobby and go back to like you know what my dad would call like a real job Mm -hmm. and I I worked with Towers Perrin actually which is where I say I grew up and that's where I discovered financial services and so Mm -hmm. that's why I really you know became um You know, and my understanding of the financial world, you know, through that time with them. um, It was fascinating at the time, but actually, it's still fascinating. You know, I still learn things. You know, Mm. when I speak to people in financial services, there's so many different areas of it. And, you know, as you'll appreciate, it is complicated. Yeah. The thing that didn't sit that well with me was, you know, my time at, at Towers, I understood about how products were manufactured. I mean, Towers, the Tillinghouse brand, manufactured mm. products on behalf of their clients, you know, the big banks, the wealth managers. And then they got taken to market and people like you and me on this call end up, you know, buying them, right? You know, we end up mm. buying a mortgage or an investment or a structured product. And, and what I realized is that most consumers, unless they're very fortunate to be either knowledgeable or have people around them that are knowledgeable, it's not possible for them to really understand what they're buying. Mm -hmm. And and as much as we put a lot of effort in the industry into that, and and you'll imagine with your audience, the advisors try very hard, you know, genuinely to make sure their customers, clients are informed. You know, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, I think the advisors would, would probably agree with me that a lot of their clients and customers do just trust them they don't really, you know. They say they yes, I do understand the mortgage, or I do understand yeah. this. But I think they just they do what kind of hope yeah. you've got it right for me because yeah. because I'm I'm not sure. It's and it's not because uh they're not intelligent people or they're not interested in their money, which upsets me when when mm-hmm. you get into that discussion. You know that oh, people are not interested in their money. What a load of rubbish! People are
0: they, interested in they money. really are. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, anyone's interested in their money, but actually, sometimes it is too hard. And I use the analogy of. You know, I I love driving, you know, a car, I love driving. Um, But if you'd said to me to get my license at 17, which is when in Australia you can get your license, that I had to take the engine apart and put it back together in order to get my license, I'd I'd be Mm -hmm. on the bus. Mm -hmm. You know, even though I can perfectly well drive a car, but the barrier would have been too high for me to bother. And I think that's how it is, or how I feel it is, for financial services. The barrier is just too high for most people who are busy living their lives to really understand all these products. So, so that didn't sit well. So then, you know, I got the opportunity to MVO evalue from Towers Perrin when they merged with Watson Wyatt. I ran that for five mm-hmm. years. It took me a step closer to the consumer in terms of taking an institutional piece of kit in terms of forecasting model to the mm-hmm. retail industry. And then obviously on, after I did my five years with them there, I then went on to Money Hub where I felt I could actually help, really help the end consumer. So. I've ended up after all of that in some very kind of wonky fashion um, loving what I'm doing at Money Hub, which is obviously we sell B2B. So we sell this to businesses, but it's always about the end client, the consumer, because that's, mm. that's what that's what we bring to the party. Ooh.
0: Powerful stuff, Sam. Power- and it's a great analogy about driving the car. I'd be with you on that one. I still would never learn to drive. I'd be Random? on the bus
2: too. Are you, are you on that, Brandon, are you going to be on that as well, or, or would you take the
1: car apart? I don't think I could even begin to start doing that. It's fantastic. <laughs> I really like that.
0: <laughs> so pension, uh, let's get a bit technical, Sam, shall we? And uh, oh, the pensions dashboard project, it's, it sounds so simple, doesn't it, in theory? And, and I'd love to hear from you on what's actually happening in practice at the moment. And why you joined, which I know you did, the Money and Pension Service Pensions Dashboard Steering Group.
2: So I joined the dashboard because going back to my um, desire to help consumers with their money, uh, it really upset me that, you know, there are 1.6 million pension pots of which, you know, just under 20 billion goes, you know, wayward in terms of, you know, the pensions that these people should have. Mm -hmm. And, And I have to say, we'll probably never match them up. I, I, I think they are probably a write-off. I, I mean, even with the pension dashboard, I'm not sure we'll be able to, to marry up that. But what we can do is stop it from ever happening again. So stop mm-hmm. the rot, is what I say. You know, let's mm-hmm. stop people losing the pensions that they have got uh, yeah. for the future. And, and also with auto-enrolment, you know, as you'll appreciate, it's law now that we invest in our pensions. So the mm-hmm. employer has to invest a certain amount and obviously we too will be investing more and more over our lifetime to make sure that we are you know, looked after in retirement in the way that we need to be financially. I think it would be a criminal offense to make it uh, law that we all have to invest in our pensions, but not law that I can access them all and find them all when I need to be able to get access yeah. to them all. So that's what uh, I think the pension dashboard fundamentally is all about, is never, never losing track of those pensions again Always being able to access them uh, for the rest of time. So I think fundamentally that is the main principle, and also that is why I joined because I really do think it's important that anyone, anyone at all, can actually keep. I mean, do, I mean, do you know that by the time you're thirty now, the average pension pots that you'll have is five to six, mm-hmm. I mean, like five It's
0: amazing, isn't it?
2: And, well. and, that's, and that's not changing, is it? You know, people do no. not stay at the same place. You know, as you know, mm-hmm. before you now for life. They go in and out of employment. They have their own companies and businesses they start. So, you know, through our lifetime now, we have a lot of jobs, which I think we all like. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think that's, you know, the positive. Mm-hmm. The negative about it is, you know, it's, it actually makes it harder to keep track of, you know, in effect, long term savings, which we do need.
0: Of course. So our audience today, obviously, are IFAs and power planners. So I wonder what benefits do you really see the Pensions Dashboard as bringing directly to, to our advisor audience?
2: Well, I think the main benefit is the fact that they will be um, a, a group that is authorised to have that data shared with. So, you, you know, mm. you imagine being, you know, going going back to my original site so like when you work with a client and, and you know, everyone dreads, you know, how much do you spend on groceries? Well, <laughs> If you think that's a dreadful question to get, you know, wait till someone says, get the shoebox out with all your pensions that are in Mm -hmm. it. You know, it's like, I I think the big thing about this is that on behalf of the client, you'll be able to actually find and source all of their pensions through one place. Mm -hmm. And I think that is amazing, isn't it? I mean, in fact, it's so amazing. I don't think anyone listening to this will believe me. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, but i'm sure they are going to be very enamored by the benefits
0: because these are the bits they really don't like doing this isn't the added value that the, the client has come to them for is it so.
2: no and, and and the fact that you know you can get all of that data you know in one place in one in one kind of you know um kind of you know kind of pull if you like i think the important part about that is that you then you can give better advice Exactly. You've got you yeah. know, more information about this person. So you exactly. know, that, that's a really good thing.
0: Yeah, it is, isn't it? Uh, we know that MoneyHub is also an alpha partner for the pensions dashboard and uh, just linked up the first pension dash- dashboard with the government's
2: infrastructure.
0: Well done. Yeah,
2: you know, we were, you know we're, obviously we're, we've got to keep up the FinTech, you know, kind of um, mm-hmm. is what I would say street cred got to be you know got to have the street cred of the fintech so we were genuinely hot off the press on that one made sure that we were the first one to connect so you know we've beaten even the even the main you know the main provider who's going to be doing this for a living you know in effect which is the Origo, and and, oh, yeah. and you know the gemini the, the relationship you know that they have with maps is to you know be the underlying infrastructure that we will be pulling this data with. But it was very nice to be the first one to render it and to be able to see how it shows on a commercial dashboard. So actually you know when we pulled the API, you know we saw it you know fill mm, down yeah. So, yeah actually, it's like you know it's great to see that right. actually build
0: powerful stuff, yeah definitely, and it's it so does that mean then that we're one step closer to the dashboard actually being made available to the public, Do you? Yes,
2: yeah, so I mean, there is um, a real commitment and a real, um, drive now to get this over the line in effect because as, as uh, we all know this has been rumbling the word I'd it's use has been a while maybe 15 years actually yeah. you know it's probably that long isn't it it's been rumbling. it will be
0: I'm sure. I think it will yeah yeah I, I
2: don't think I'm wrong when I'm saying that but but actually we're near the we're near the kind of end of that because you know from um, July next year July 23 the the first phase of the dashboards will be made available and actually they have you know they have a lot of data available because it's really ex- excluding some of the more trickier schemes that are kind of you know still on microfish and things like that so i mean you know it is excluding some of those from stage one but actually all of the you know the main pensions that we have in terms mm-hmm. of tc and master trust pensions will be available in that stage mm-hmm. so i think we'll all be pleasantly surprised and I think what it will do is when we're able to bring together most of people's pensions, you know, so, you know, kind of like quite a lot of what people have got, it motivates you to, to realize that just with that bit, if I actually then added in the other bits which are missing, mm. so whether you do that manually in the interim or, you know, you wait for the dashboard to fill in the gaps, I don't think it really matters. I think suddenly we've elevated that long-term saving to the right to the right place for discussion for work for looking at for tracking Mm. all the good things that need to be done with this you know because as you'll appreciate your audience the sooner we get on the front foot at getting people to to think of this as something they need they need to look after they need to invest in um you are listening to ifa talk ifa magazine's weekly podcast Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at IFA Magazine.
0: And we know that pensions has often got some bad PR, hasn't it? Oh, which over oh, the years for different reasons and totally unfairly. But I just wonder whether the if knowledge is power and if people can see the value of their pension and they can see it there, whether that then motivates them to build it up and actually is a, a spurt to to putting more assets into pensions and seeing the value of what they've got. So well, not just, just that, actually.
2: We've seen we've seen with the, the data that we already have, which is really fascinating, that not only do you get more engaged when you can touch it and feel it and see it, you know, you know, very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but also uh, the consolidation. So I thought that when people could see all their pensions in one place, they'd probably feel uh, you know, that's okay, right, because, you know, you get the total. Um, but actually anyone that is offered a consolidation for the ones that, you know, make sense to consolidate, so you might have five of which three make a lot of sense to consolidate into one, um, th- th- people never say no. They're like, oh, yes, mm. I can do that. So so actually yeah. it kind of starts the tidying up exercise, doesn't it, of getting things more yes. is, is what i was interested to to find so so for the advisors and the financial planning community you know i would say that it, it will it'll a help them but also i think it will it will create um more work for them in terms of actually you know helping people to get their money into mm. the right place for the longer term which i think they're going to enjoy doing right
0: mm, i agree i agree um, I'm going to move you away from the pensions dashboard now because it's clearly a topic in which in which you are very, very enthusiastic, but onto another one you like. And we're familiar <laughs> with um, with open banking, aren't we, to a degree? But I wonder how then does open
2: finance and open data
0: fit in? If you could talk to that, it would be great.
2: So I'm, I've, got to, I've got to get on my hobby horse about open banking because the world community <laughs> and and the investment world tend to dismiss open banking because it's current accounts and credit cards. And they're like, you know, nothing to do with us. It's not, it's not my place, you know, that's not where I, I, I operate. And, uh, I, and I, I push back on that and say, no, you know, it might, it might not be your place to you know, help me with my current account or my credit card for sure, I, I, I get that. But what we have seen is that when you put your current money with your future money, you, you get incredible impact and that's because actually, why do you need money? Full stop. You need money to live your life. So first of all, you need money to live day to day—current accounts, credit cards—and uh, then you need money to live, you know, your future life and things you want to do that are way bigger than what you can do if you just live your life day to day. And and so the two go together so beautifully. It upsets me when I hear this. Well, that's not that, that's nothing to do with us. And 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 I and I think actually the responsibility for anyone in financial services is to bring them together if they can to enable people to see not just their day-to-day money, but alongside their future money, which is where open finance kicks in. So our investments, our savings, our pensions, and then actually going on to open data, um, it's actually extending, you know, for example, we have a link to LinkedIn to pull employment history.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: that's very helpful when you're, you know, feeling you know, trying to get a mortgage or when you're even renting yeah. property. But on top of that, if you just take a step back in terms of investing actually even just knowing that someone has you know doubled trebled their income profile I mean you may not need to know you know day-to-day exactly what someone is earning that's probably not what you need to know but as an advisor or wealth manager I'd love to know that one of my clients has actually doubled trebled their income profile Mm -hmm. because that genuinely might be a time that I could do more with them or help them Mm -hmm. more so so these are things that I think we shouldn't be as dismissive of in our world. So I, I think open banking is one dimensional, open finance is two dimensional, open data is three dimensional. And we cannot be dismissive of it as, as, as the wealth community we must embrace it. And the, and the government, I don't know if you know, but in the Queen's speech, um, open data was mentioned. And that is because there is a big remit to get from open banking to open finance to open data in quite short order. And I think mm-hmm. that, that tells us the direction of travel. And, you know, let's think about open data. It's going to be possible in the not too distant future for me to pull all of my Google Maps data. So all of my driving data, all of where I've been, that's going to be available via API. You know, Mm -hmm. businesses like Money Hub will pull that in and make it available for for businesses to use to good effect with their clients. And I know people laugh at me, but it's like from that data, you can probably tell someone what car they should buy. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes of course.
2: So so what I'm getting at is where we're heading in this world is to a world where you can engage with people and make life for them so much easier and how you work with them to tell them what they need to know and to do it in a way that the consumer like people like us are delighted about. I mean I'd be delighted if someone told me what car I should drive like Mm -hmm. and for these reasons you know because you don't do long trips or you do do long trips I mean whatever it is is married up and you know and maybe it's a few cars you could pick for me but but what I'm getting at is, honestly, I'd be delighted to, to have some, someone help me in that way.
1: Just moving on to a slightly different topic, then. As I'm sure our listeners are aware, the new consumer duty rules are expected to be announced in July. And FCA-regulated businesses need to comply by April 2023. So, Sam, what do you think that FCA hopes to achieve with these new rules?
2: So I think the FCA um, is very keen to put the consumer at the heart of all we do. That is is what I think their remit is. Mm -hmm. Let's place the consumer where it matters. And they're doing that um, by taking the treating the customer fairly kind of regulatory environment, I think, to a new level and a level that really has teeth now. And the reason they're doing that is because I think they are still not happy with the products and services and the silos that they see in terms of how consumers are dealt with. So I think that's why they've placed it at the heart of the regulated product provider to say you need to not just make sure it's suitable at the point when the consumer uses or buys your product or, or comes under contract with you, but for the life of that product. And if you think about it, this is staggering for, for this world that, that we live in. So suddenly, you know, someone has to make sure that the mortgage I have, the pension I have, the investment I have, whoever that regulated product provider is behind the scenes, they have to make sure that for their world that they operate in, I have got the best possible product mm-hmm. available to me at any point. And if you think about, we hold these products for like 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So for 20 or 30 years, you've got to make sure that whatever other products you've got, have got rid of, have you have to take me on that journey with you. And I think this is a massive sea change. And you know, it, it, for some, I think it's going to be pretty scary because how do you do that? You know, how do you get that right? But for me and, and for businesses that I think are embracing the kind of positivity of consumer duty, this is the chance to really get close to your customers in a way that you've never, ever been close to them before because the value exchange is there now. You, you share data with me. You know, You allow us to run algorithms over that data permanently. And my promise to you is, I'll always have you on the best product available and I'll always be there when you need me. So even mm-hmm. if things go a bit amiss, like COVID sent some businesses, you know, right up against the wall, I, I can actually be there for you in those circumstances. You know, you've got a 10 year track record of being brilliant. You know, we're not going to see you, you know, done in through of COVID. We're going to help you. I mean, imagine that. I mean, I, I would have, you know, wouldn't you fall over? If your product provider actually offered to help you because they knew how good you've been for the last 10 years and they want to see you through this because they know you're going to be good again. I mean, mean, this is a new mode of operation. And I honestly think the products we're going to see at market will change. They'll become more flexible, won't they? Because they need to be. Mm -hmm. So rather than having to ship people around into lots of different products, you're actually going to have more, more flexible products in terms of the terms. That are available, so that you'll move, won't you, within the product as your circumstances change?
1: Do you think businesses are ready for these changes then?
2: No, no, not all. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're barely able to do to do suitability at the sale of the product. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean that. I mean, yeah. going back to the original problem, because half the time you can't get the data you need. You know, to, to you know, you have to. You know, There yeah. you know, I said. You know, sometimes I think people end up with products that are. Not Maybe not the most, but not through any fault of the industry, but because the data to do that with is missing. So this is the time I think that, that you've got to, to embrace the technology revolution that's happening with data. You've got to embrace that, get on with it, get the value in exchange in place, and then be able to service the customer in the way that not only you, you would like to anyway, but the way the FCA is insisting now.
0: So No, it's really pivotal, isn't it, Sam? I wonder what you might see as being the, the main obstacles in the way then at the moment for businesses to actually start to embrace these changes.
2: Oh, legacy thinking. You need to let it go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say. I mean, you it says be, it all, doesn't it? Yeah, but well, you yeah. might be scared of what's coming. You might be, you know, you might think it's risky, this open data and all that. I, I understand that, you know, genuinely do understand it. But there is yeah. the risk of not taking risks. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's where we're at. So all I would say is just let the legacy thinking go and think about, you know, you're going to have to probably feel uncomfortable, but actually you'll be in the right place and you'll, you'll be future proofed. Your business will be future proofed. Your clients will love you. That, that, that pivotal, mm. that, that crossing the chasm, whatever you want to call it, that time is here.
0: Mm. I love that concept there about there's a risk, about not taking a risk. And I think financial planners will be all too on board with that because of their conversations about investment as opposed to saving. So, you know, there are risks always around. Could it be inflation eating away at a deposit, account paying 1%? So there are risks about not taking. So let's hope that that legacy thinking actually does shift and that this conversation today will shift that one along just a little bit.
2: Yeah, we we inch it forward, don't we?
0: So Sam Money hub I know, inputted into the FCA's consultation on the issue. And so I wonder if you could talk about what role that open data actually can play within these proposals.
2: So I think open data is quite key into the proposals of consumer duty, because what you need in a way to comply with the FCA's consumer duty in a way that's scalable and means that actually you are able to service customers in a cost-effective way, mm-hmm. you've got to use technology. And mm-hmm. the technology and open data are the two things together that I think are the recipe for helping businesses with consumer duty. So the ability to use you know, the algorithms that we have in place now that runs across people's data and can alert you and the consumer to a change in circumstances mm-hmm. that then enables our discussion or potentially uh, you know, being directed to some online service—it doesn't—it doesn't really matter what it is. What the FCA is saying is that when people's circumstances change, you need to do something, and it's not the role of the consumer, or indeed anyone anyone else on that journey with them, apart from the regulated pro- product provider, to make sure that's that happens. Mm. And 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 as you'll know, you know, that there is no regulated product provider out there at the moment that is monitoring people's circumstances in any anywhere at all and then surfacing alerts when they've got better products or other products and services may be useful so I don't see how you're going to do it without embracing open data
0: now I'm, I'm going to now give you the power to change one little thing in the world of financial services and I wonder if that was the case what what might that be
2: well, for me, it's actually quite simple. So my one thing I would like to change and hopefully will change actually is um, no more product flogging. You know, they, oh, day yes. day to me, would I yeah. would like to see them over. So, you know, and I know that a lot of financial planners are already there. A lot of yeah. IFAs are you know, already there. So, you know, I'm not saying that we're, we haven't got people in these positions, but I think no. it's too few and not not enough and so i'd like to think that with this consumer duty we shift the regulated product providers who obviously want to sell their products we shift them into a new mindset and that means that actually all we all we do is think about the consumer need and we start with the consumer need eventually you will obviously sell the consumer products of course we need products life life protection insurance mm-hmm. uh, there's lots of products you need to actually of make, course yeah lots but yeah. but not but never start with the product and seeding it and taking it to market the way that i saw you know when i was at towers stop that and actually put consumer need first
0: yeah oh here here i would totally agree with you it'd be almost like a like a doctor selling prescriptions for antibiotics rather than solution to solving a bacterial infection or something wouldn't it and yeah. so I'd totally agree so sam thank you i think we've we've really enjoyed that conversation with you today you've given us so much to think about and I'm sure that our audience that are listening in today will agree with me and have enjoyed it as much as Brandon and and I have and it's it's great to see what you're doing to to really help to empower consumers that when it comes to their money their relationship with money and how it can empower their lives and so thank you very much for for being on the podcast today
2: well thank you for having me I've really enjoyed it IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research and whatever necessary legal advice should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.